0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Barbara Melgoat, who's a senior author of the paper Inhalable Textile Fibres Impair Airway Epithelial Differentiation, which was recently published in the Blue Journal. Also joined by my colleague Dr. Chris Carlston, who wrote the Associated Editorial. Dr. Melgert is Professor of Respiratory Immunology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And Dr. Carsten is Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. So Chris, to to start the discussion off, what
0: are microplastics and where do they originate? Right, so as the name implies, microplastics are small plastics. In this case, very small. We have been thinking about micro in terms of air pollution for years related to traffic and other industrial processes. And now we realize that in the air we breathe, and indeed in the water that we take in and food, et cetera, there are innumerable of these very small plastics. The size of these plastics, so small as I said, the exact size varies, but we typically think of microplastics when we use that term as less than 5 millimeters. I think most people know what a what a millimeter is. However, most of these plastics are actually much smaller. And that is very important because, as we know from, again, air pollution and other related research, that these very small particles can get deep into the lungs. Again, they can also get into the GI tract or gut, but for the purposes of paper, the lung is the focus of interest. So this is a problem, we can discuss more about this, but because the use of plastics continues to increase around the world. These are very, very common, and that's why this is an important paper. The plastic products around the world, most people can appreciate, are innumerable. And what happens is that when those plastics are produced, first of all, in the places of production, in the occupational or workplace setting, the workers can be exposed. And in fact, we know that from observational research. But moreover, once these products are out in the real world, they break down, and they're virtually impossible to eliminate entirely other than just simply breaking down slowly over years, and they're therefore very persistent. And this is another reason why we're really concerned, because plastics accumulate, their tiny fragments continue to accumulate essentially exponentially.
1: Okay. And what do we already know about the deposition and the risk of microplastics in the lung?
0: Yeah, so we, we we know a lot less in detail than we do about traditional air pollution. However, the work that's been done over decades on air pollution deposition is very helpful because fundamentally, the deposition of particles is really governed by their size, no matter what they're made of. Now, what happens when they get in the body will depend on the chemical composition, but as far as deposition alone, as you asked, it's really governed by size. And we know that, as I was saying before, the very smallest particles, we we may call ultrafine particles. And again, that's usually a term for traditional air pollution, but applies equally to microplastics. Those ultrafine particles, some of them, in fact, many of them, will make it to the smaller regions of the lung, the alveolar regions. And as you'll here and can appreciate from reading this paper by Dr. Melgard and colleagues that alveolar region is critically important to the concerns that are arising are in terms of microplastics. Again, I mentioned it before, but I should for completeness recall that many of these particles do end up in the gut and there are concerns as to what will happen in the GI tract. But that concern, while it is still very important, needs to be balanced against emerging evidence that the inhalation or taking into the airways is much more substantial than we previously thought. We previously thought that inhalation was a very minor and almost trivial route relative to the GI tract. But in fact, it may be up to 50% of all microplastics that come in through the inhalation route. So it's obviously extremely important. Now, moving to the paper, Barbara.
1: What were the objectives of your study?
2: Well, actually, we we started off, I'm a macrophage person, so I'm really interested in macrophages. So we wanted to build this new model looking at macrophages and epithelial interactions with lung organoids. But we got stuck in the effects we found on epithelial cells alone. So no macrophages in this paper. But what we ended up characterizing was changes in the epithelial repair responses um, in lung organoids induced by different types of proplastics.
1: Can you describe your methodology?
2: Yes. So as I said, we used lung organoids, which is a novel 3D model which recapulates the repair processes that our airways have very well. And we use primary epithelial cells for these models, either human or mouse. We use both in the paper. And if you put them in a culture dish, then the stem cells within these epithelial cells, they can regenerate into structures that resemble lung tissue structures. So they can either develop into alveolar structures or airway structures. And what we found was that when we incubated these epithelial cells with uh, nylon microfibers that the outgrowth of the airway structures was completely inhibited while the alveolar structures were sort of intact but also slightly changed in morphology in, in um, composition of cell types but the inhibition of the airway structures was very dramatic and what we found was that it was, not the fibers themselves that actually induced this, but it was something leaching from the nylon. So it was an additive or something which is being produced during the production of nylon that is able to leach out of the plastic and was inhibiting this formation of airway epithelial cells. Uh, and we managed to break it down to the culprit being upregulation of a specific protein in epithelial cells called HOXA5, which appear to be a very important protein in deciding whether an epithelial cell or progenitor cell can develop into an airway cell. And if this protein is upregulated, then this differentiation into airway structures is not possible anymore. And when we inhibited this protein, we saw the return of the airway structures. So we managed to really pin down the mechanism, even though we didn't manage to pin down which exact component in nylon was causing this effect.
1: Okay, I think you told us all about the I Is there anything more you want to add? Can you highlight the strengths and the limitations of your study?
2: Yeah, so that's an that's an interesting one. I, I think the strength of our study is, is that we really went into the mechanism of the observed effects. What what you see a lot in microplastics research is that a particular experiment, a cell or an animal is exposed to a huge amount of microplastics, then people see an effect and that's it. And most of the studies look at acute effects. But the beauty of this organoid model is that you can really study airway development or airway repair in a long-term manner without being in vivo. So you have the added advantage of being able to change all your parameters and check many conditions. So I think the strength is, is that we use this model to really characterize what is changing in airway development by these microplastics. Of course, it's also a limitation because it's in vitro and how that translates to an in vivo situation is very difficult to do because we don't know the levels of microplastics in the air of people's homes or workplaces um, and we don't know how much they actually inhale because the only studies looking at inhalation of microplastics looked at the bigger pieces of plastic so pl- plastic more than 10 micrometers, because smaller is very difficult to determine, so the the analytical methods are not up to scratch yet to look at the really small particles that come deep into your lungs. So it's very difficult to make a translation of these data to how toxic or how problematic inhalation of microplastics
1: can be. Chris, how common is airway and interstitial lung disease in nylon Textile workers.
0: That's a great question, and unfortunately, the bottom line is we really don't know. As is the case with many occupational diseases, there's probably a significant caseload beyond what has been revealed so far by what are essentially proactive investigations of limited case series that someone, for whatever reason, identified uh, in a in a local setting as concerning. So, for example, probably the first happened to be from my home state of Rhode Island, where Dr. Kern and colleagues in the late 90s, I think were the first to identify what's called as called flock workers lung, or same as you said, nylon textile workers. And again, this came because someone in that community noticed some cases of what appeared to be interstitial lung disease, and then noticed that it was in these individuals who were working in this plant that made flock. I can explain in a minute what flock is, but that led to a case series that was published And then some others followed, but in reality, those are, again, handfuls of cases, which in general, if we look at just the occupational literature overall for any kind of significant exposure tends to be a vast underestimate because to really understand it, of course, you'd have to meticulously study large populations, which which certainly hasn't happened in this case. So I think this is one hint at how we're so far underestimating or many people anyway are not fully appreciating this problem this study by kern actually interestingly led to a collaboration with a canadian counterpart this company that they were investigating had a canadian plant as well and those individuals actually ended up having direct investigation with uh, washing of their lungs or lavage And they noted a lot of eosinophils, high proportions of eosinophils up to 40%. And they actually had biopsies and noted a range of abnormal histology, including nonspecific interstitial pneumonia or NIP. There were cases of bronchiolitis obliterans and and other abnormalities with lymphoid nodules, et cetera, All, all of which just to say are highly abnormal. And that was just, again, this very limited series. And so one can only imagine what lies beyond that. As far as really calculating the risk, again, we don't know, but that that Canadian cohort appeared to have approximately 50% increased risk of, of some form of interstitial lung disease. So that alone, I think, is alarming. And is the exposure to microplastics increasing? We think so. Again, it's, it's a tough one to be scientifically definitive about because there is more attention to the issue. You know that the production of microplastics has steadily increased over decades. There's no question about that. Plastics have become a much more important part of our society over decades. And the range of plastics produced, the products produced, the extent to which they've infiltrated essentially all environments. There are few, if any, places in the world inhabited by humans where we cannot find microplastics. And so they are increasing exactly how much we don't know, again, because there's more attention to it. So there may be some kind of epiphenomenon there. But simply looking at water supplies, for example, uh, looking in the air, although as Dr. Melgard said, we don't know uh, as much as we like about the precise concentrations, et cetera, of what we actually inhale, but certainly just taking air samples and looking for microplastics has shown an increasing amount of them, again, in the water supply as well. And even directly in the lungs, there are some emerging studies in the last five years that do show increasingly the actual microplastics in the human lung. Again, how much this has increased, we don't know, because no one was looking for microplastics in the lung directly, say, 40 years ago. But collectively, it's certainly very concerning.
1: In the last few years, many people have been wearing nylon or polyester masks during the COVID pandemic. Could there be toxicity related
0: to that? Well, I think certainly the exposure is there. Toxicity would be a secondary assumption, I guess, based on these broader studies. I think toxicity from the mask use itself has been documented, but certainly exposure has been. I was surprised when during the pandemic, this was an initial concern. It was sort of a matter of editorials. And then several papers came out, including one in 2021 in the Journal of Hazardous Materials. And they actually carefully simulated mask use on models and showed that the inhalation of microplastics from wearing these masks was dramatically increased about 25 fold. And this was with various masks. They also showed that cleaning these masks at the time you may recall, there was a shortage of masks. So people were cleaning the masks and, and water and other various cleansers and that would actually increase, that would degrade the mass. And then when you put them back on, it would lead to further release of these of plastics. So not to mention the fact that a lot of these were discarded, of course, on the ground. I mean, you'll all remember seeing them scattered about. And those are degraded over time and become airborne. So certainly the increase in mask use, while obviously important for many reasons, not been uh, friendly to our microplastic exposure.
1: Uh, Micro- microplastics have the potential to contain additives or pollutants. Do we know or can you speculate what's responsible for the lung damage?
2: I wish I could, but no. The problem is, and it's really, really shown by our study, is that there are so many, so many unknown chemicals in plastics, ones the producers put in there, but also ones that are made during the production, that can actually leach out. So, like I said, in our study, we found that it was a compound leaching from nylon that was responsible for the effects that we found. And we have put so much effort in trying to characterize this compound in so much money, so much time, and we still don't know. And that is a compound with a very defined effect. So imagine recycling, putting lots of plastics from different origins together, all with these different chemicals that are put into one big pool and then are made into new pieces of plastics. I think that's a regulatory nightmare to if there is really a health effect of these these compounds in in trying to regulate this. And well, our study just shows that it's very difficult to find out what is in plastic, what is leaching from plastic? And even the producer of the plastic didn't know. I mean, we informed, he said, What is in there? He <laughs> we said, Well, it's just nylon. <laughs> so it's, um, there are too many producers, too many protocols, too many additives. That, that makes it, from a health perspective, a very difficult job to characterize.
1: So apart from nylon, what other inhaled microplastics have the potential to cause lung damage?
2: We already tried many types of plastic. We've also tried polyester. We've tried PVC, polyethylene. And I must say, the nylon was by far the most, in our model, I must say, the most dramatic one with the most inhibitory effects. But also PVC and polyester had effects. Polyethylene was the least dangerous one I should say but of course that's one type of plastic from one producer like I said another producer might add different additives that can have different effects so if you really want to get a general idea or a general feel of what plastics could do to our health there's almost a limitless number of plastics you would have to test and shapes and sizes so it's a bit of a a huge task to, um, to investigate.
1: Chris, I selected this paper for this podcast because I'd never previously thought about the risk of exposure to microplastics. Is it too early to start public health measures to reduce exposure to microplastics?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question and a really, really important one for the listeners, I certainly don't want to be alarmist, but I also don't want to shy from noting how concerning I think this is. I actually regret that I didn't put in the editorial the historical reference to the flocking industry because it shows that even as a a relatively knowledgeable person within occupational medicine, I'd even kind of neglected to highlight that focused on the current issue, but it's important to mention that this is the kind of thing like much in public health and occupational medicine that is is something that kind of recurs in part because we forget and we neglect to connect the dots. And this concern that, as I said before, was raised by David Kern and others at Brown University ties to a bigger theme of how the industry, and I put that in quotes, meaning you know all the various companies that produce all kinds of products, including those with microplastics, have a, have a really strong hold on information flow, et cetera. And I say that not exaggerating, in my opinion, because Dr. Kern was actually fired as a result of his investigation, quite literally, and it's been well-documented. So I don't think, it, that's one way of saying, I don't think it's too early to raise concern. The flock I didn't mention, but flock is essentially is taking fibers, in this case, microplastics, gluing them to a lattice or backing to make a nice texture for clothing, typically. And so we're, we've all worn these products and they're soft and they're nice, but here in the background, there are these issues, there are the workers, etc. That was what he and colleagues exposed. And now we're talking about the public. So you said public health, and that's why this is so important because, as I mentioned earlier, these plastics are on the roadways, et cetera. Now, for example, with electric vehicles, which you know I support as getting away from fossil fuels, we know very clearly now that with the rise of electric vehicles, and, and generally they're being very heavy because of the batteries, the plastic from the tires is coming off uh, little by little as microplastics on the road wind comes it's taken into the the level of the automobile intake then it's in the car we inhale and these again they they are things that might sound you know kind of minor in the grand scheme of the world's problems and perhaps they are but still we're all being exposed now we're seeing from Dr Melgerd and colleagues these concerning effects now as she said there are limitations one of which as she mentioned is that there are innumerable plastics now and I, I kind of think of it as, somewhat similar or analogous to the vaping, the challenge of research on vaping where the product is constantly changing and there's never enough resources and researchers and time to to get the data, especially when you're doing work like she did, which was so meticulous and high quality and not sort of settling for shortcuts. And if you want to do it right with the innumerable products, it's a it's a mountain of work. But you know, to answer your question, the problem is not going away and it it seems to be only getting worse. And so as with air pollution, when it became apparent you know, in the 1950s, et cetera, David Bates, et cetera, they didn't shy away from this, and it proved to be a true problem. And I think one of the mistakes we make is waiting until it's so overwhelming that it's almost po- impossible to catch up with. So there, there's the precautionary principle, which people have heard of, and I think it applies here. Should we wait to, to find interstitial lung disease in everyday people, even if you know this is the kind of thing that might take decades to develop, or should we work proactively in, in a cautionary manner? And I, I kind of favor the latter as, as, as difficult as it may be.
2: If I can add to that, there's a recent study in the Netherlands that actually showed that the car tire particles are the most common microplastics in the outside air. So that really indicates that. Um, it's an important source, whereas inside, it's more our clothes and textiles that are an important source of the
1: microplastics. Well, thank you both. Uh, before we finish, do you have any final comments you'd like to make about the uh, the study, starting with you, Barbara?
2: Yeah, so the, just coming back to what Chris said, the, the precautionary principle, I am a strong believer in that. And I think it will serve multiple purposes. If you ventilate your home, Assuming you're in a an area that has clean air outside, then I think uh, ventilation will uh, a lot of ventilation of your home will serve multiple purposes because it will keep your microplastic levels down, but all other pollutants that you're generating in your home and cooking, heating will also be lower. So I think that's a very safe bet to to do. I mean, it doesn't it costs you a little bit of energy, but it gives you a lot of clean air in return, and there have been multiple studies that shown um, that a lot of vacuum cleaning actually uh, lowers uh, your levels of microplastics in your home, so I think that's also a very easy thing to do. I'd like to encourage people to ventilate and vacuum clean, the two Vs.
0: Yeah, and you 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 can decide whether or not to include the following, John, because you'll see it's a little bit, it can seem self-serving, but... I would also try to connect the dots to some of the previous work by the Blue Journal in that we, my lab, published a paper on DBP or dibutyl phthalate, which is, is one of many chemicals that will be found in plastics. And I just think it's important because these plastics are very heterogeneous and that paper did show adverse immunological effects from, from DBP. And it might be worth mentioning that that was a human model, a controlled human model, which is probably our specialty here here in my lab in Vancouver. And, and I'm saying that because we need to develop a human model, I think, for, the, for these microplastics so that we can... Get at some of the issues that Barbara mentioned that that may or may not be revealed by very powerful, but as she said, limited in vitro models. So we are doing that. In fact, we're doing that in collaboration with with Barbara. So I think collectively that's an example of how the Blue Journal and the community can come together to try to advance the science and and make a difference in this regard.
1: So I'd like to thank Dr. Carlson and Melgut for this very interesting discussion. To the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. So thank you again for listening.